Affirming that precision is a poetic ideal, as well as a requirement of science, teaching that a love of words and an understanding of language are the creative movement of the spirit across the face of the waters, showing how words disclose the transcendent order of meaning and value behind the curtain of a transient world, these beloved and arduous tasks of the classical schoolmaster abide. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, where we are seeking the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. My name is Scott Postman, and I am joined here by Joffrey Sweet today, and we are, as uh, we have been doing, going through David Hicks' book, Norms and Nobility. And today we're uh, here in chapter two, Joffrey. Chapter two, the word is truth. We're going to talk about mythos and logos. Yes, there's an ancient quarrel, says Socrates, between poetry and philosophy, and David Hicks gets to the heart of that. And in this uh, particular episode, this is a fairly short chapter, so we're going to give you sort of the meat, uh, really the, the conclusion and, and sort of meat of what Hicks is going to get at in this chapter. And then we want to go back and just kind of unpack it for you and, and make some comments along the way. Perfect. So I, I'm going to read uh, from something a little toward the end of the chapter here. To, so this is what Hicks is saying in the chapter, the word is truth. And then we're going to break it on down. So Hicks here, both myth and reason are built upon the primal word and both influence the word myth, hoping to enrich its connotative wisdom and reason attempting to sharpen its denotative precision. The word is mastered in the one instance through the imagination in an emotional atmosphere and in the other instance by means of painstaking analysis and a disinterested mood. Classical education must provide the student with both means of mastering the word, but of preeminent importance to human life and subsequent learning is the cultivation of the imagination. Only through the imagination can virtue be taught and character formed. Character that, as Aristotle argues, is the prerequisite for reasoning with true detachment, without purposefully or accidentally turning reason into a tool of self-interest. Wow. That's a pretty powerful uh, paragraph, and it sounds a lot like words are pretty uh, versatile and complicated. Yeah, that, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is is in a nutshell the problem that this chapter addresses and so you know we're going to get into all sorts of philosophy talking about what it means that words mean so much does that even help with communication but you know really where where Hicks is outstanding here in this chapter is that he emphasizes the importance even as we're talking about semantics and words uh, imagination is what yeah. it's about, right? We need to spark the imagination in education. Well, let's begin here then. Um, we'll just start from the very beginning, and uh, we'll read a, a either a paragraph or, or a little section, and then we're going to kind of comment on it. But I think starting here, Joffrey, wouldn't mind, this first paragraph is going to be really insightful. Absolutely. So while establishing his dialectical credentials, Socrates shocked his contemporaries by arguing that virtue and vice are not the inherent properties of objects. They result instead from the rational or irrational use of objects. More incredibly, he taught that it is worse to wrong another than to wrong oneself. Such unorthodox notions seemed to contradict the evidence of human experience. 
especially as recorded in the myths. The sudden rational articulation of those two propositions concerning the nature of virtue forecast a violent collision between Socrates' dialectical logos and the dogmatic mythos. To the effects of this collision on education, we now turn our attention. <laughs> we now turn our attention, by the way, is the best introductory sentence there is. It's, a, it's an oldie but goodie. It is an oldie but goodie. Well, you know, I, I was... I wanted to kind of be the peanut gallery as you're reading here that they are not the inherent properties of objects and go, ooh, and ah, (laughs) you know, along the way. So what what he's suggesting here is that Socrates has come along and disrupted what is, uh, seems to be the established belief that um, virtue and vice are in the actual objects themselves and suggests that there is some sort of form for those and that uh, by being able to develop that in ourselves by imitation, then we can truly um, interact with the mythos or the, the subject matter at hand. So he's, he's really inverting what is a longstanding um, understanding you know, by the Greek uh, thinkers of the day that mythos really informs the imagination and what the world is like. And so we, we might think of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey as sort of being the Bible of that day. This is what informed the imagination of, of, of the Greek world, yeah. going all the way back to the warlike Homeric um, you know, uh, hero uh, demigods to uh, even to the end of the Odyssey where uh, we see a transition to more of community-based, uh, the police and, and the importance of the, the city-state and family you know, generations. So there's this, this – this is the guiding mythos. And then he's going to argue and say, well, that's actually, um, that's not good enough. The sudden rational articulation of these two propositions concerning the nature of virtue, which it's not in the object, mm-hmm. um, brings up what uh, Plato says in the Republic is this ancient quarrel between the poets and the philosophers. And, you know, I think that there's, there's a reason that so many Christians saw so much proto-gospel in the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And I think this notion is, you know, that, 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 that first step in breaking down the pagan view of the world, yes. right? It, it, what, what Jesus did to the world, and, you know, I'm, and I don't want to get too Girardian here, um, but, you know, there's this what 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 is being done here is setting up human responsibility human imagination human action and making it so that we are not merely objects of the gods victims of the gods yes that's that's exactly right and and i think why why this is so um as you m- mentioned this is so um familiar, I think, to Christians looking back, you know, and seeing Socrates. Some have even gone so far as to say, well, maybe he was a monotheist and maybe he had been encountered one of the old, you know, Hebrew prophets because, I mean, he sounds so Christian here reading reading back. But reaching with the imagination, you know, come to this understanding at least that um, there's a problem with our stories, you know, and this is part of why he wants to at least eliminate some of the poetry from the city, which is amazing. And it's Mm -hmm. amazing in a Romans one kind of way, you know, but you know, one should read, (laughs) read the Greeks and, and, and read Socrates and be absolutely amazed. But I think that, that this, this, the Christian aspect is the perfect uh, lead into the next bit of bit here that I want to read. Originally, the Greek logos meant simply word or the word by which the inward thought is expressed. 
That's a, <laughs> that's a lot to put into. But yeah, perhaps the mythos shaped the Logos in primeval times, molding the first words of the contours of its compelling narrative. But after a while, as old words appeared in new contexts and took on richer shades of meaning, the Logos began asserting itself, bringing to each new myth the values and colors of former myths. The discovery of reason attended this phenomenon. However non-rational myths were, they betrayed man's urge to explain what he found in himself and in the world, as well as his belief that explanation was somehow possible. Regardless of how firmly they avowed the inscrutability of divine reason, the early cosmological myths presupposed that reason existed and left the way open for man to decipher what reason he could from the puzzling pattern of the god's behavior. This pattern reflected the mythmaker's insight into the internal and external realities and aided man in developing rules for ordering his thought and behavior in accordance with the imminent reasonableness of these realities. Yeah, that word imminent there too is is not the imminent that we think of as suddenly coming but that that has an inner form, right? Mm. So we we you know we we've accepted if if we're Greek if we're if we're living in Socrates' day and you know for the most part it's not that everybody had this you know consensus of a worldview, but for the most part we accepted that you know our story is the gods you know rule everything and they are uh, athanatos while we are thanatos. So we you know we die they don't. That's the only difference between them. They have the same kind of passions. They have the same kind of failures, mm-hmm. um, but they're more powerful because they don't die. But this is the world we live in, and you know. It's not really my fault for what I do, right? Because <laughs> you know Apollo made me do it, <laughs> uh, and and so then Socrates comes along and says, "No, this isn't how it works at all." You know, and and not just Socrates, but others who are raising this idea of reason, right? And you know, there's a shocking phrase in this in what I just read that I think is easy enough to just elide right over. The discovery of reason. Mm. We have been so profoundly influenced by Greek thought that we don't think that it had to be discovered. Yeah. Right. Well, we, we think rationality is something and reason is something that's just endemic to being human. And it is not, and that is not to, to, to say that uh, there's some sort of subhuman way of being or, but you know, fallen man can exist yeah. and he can say, you know, first this, then that fallen man can say, well, this is the process for making a fire or for birthing a baby, or for gathering blueberries, and but still be a slave without reason. That's right, and 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 so this is quite a discovery, right? This is a, a discovery to say, wait a minute, um, if we can learn to think for ourselves, maybe we are not just simply the playthings of the gods, right? We right. maybe maybe there is something more to our existence and our purpose, and. You know, this is what makes us different than the rest of the animals. This is, you know, our ability to think through these. Can we develop this faculty? Can we learn to use it better? You know, is there a way to know the truth by practicing it? And Hicks, you know, brings up the image of, of, of wise Athena springing from the head of Zeus, mm-hmm. of Zeus, uh, as, as, as an example of, of, of reason springing out from mythos logos evolving to signify the inward thought itself, quoting from X now, or the intrinsic abstract rational principle governing all things. So almost immediately, as we see in Plato's Republic reasoning, Athena began to criticize her mythological father. This evolution continued into Hellenistic times when the Logos attempted to avenge itself on the mythos by subsuming it 
the guardians of the mythos, the teachers of rhetoric, endeavored to extract the rational poltergeist believed to dwell in the body of each myth. They offered every species of scholarly explanation for the perplexing behavior of the gods and heroes, and sometimes presented their explanations as surrogates for the myths themselves. <laughs> but their plot failed. Myth defies analysis, especially in instruction, and happily, usually survives it. It has become almost commonplace to divide ancient consciousness, thus between the logos and the mythos. Yes, yeah, so that is a mouthful, mm. <laughs> but but the idea of the mythos there is that it's it's unable to be analyzed. You know, this is um, as an example. This comes up a lot of times in when I'm teaching. You know, with students are like, well, why did they do it that way? Like, you know, if you were if if you were to present this myth in say a stage play or a film or something, you know. The, the amount of disbelief you would have to suspend, you know, you'd have to suspend your belief yeah. long enough to, to accept the story. Um, but you, for the Greek, you didn't have to analyze it. This just is the way the world was. And so the rhetoricians come along and say, well, uh, maybe it's not, you know, maybe there's another way of thinking about this. And and so we're, we want to pull from the mythos. We want to pull these words. We want to pull these ideas. We want to pull these images out and let's try to analyze them. But the whole reason they're doing that is because of the logos, yes. right? As soon as you discover reason, yep. now there's <laughs> now the rabbits in the cabbage patch. There you go. And now, you have to deal with it. We have a, we have a tool. Now, the problem with I think the those on the side of reason was they wanted to destroy mythos. They wanted to destroy the story, but if you destroy the story, you're destroying the actual source of where the logos is going to spring from. Yes, yeah, so I, I want to read uh, read Hicks here on uh, as he sort of unpacks a little bit illustratively what mythos and logos are. But first, um, a, a shorter quote, and I'd love for you to react to that. Um, so, the mythos represents man's imaginative and ultimately spiritual effort to make this world intelligible. The logos sets forth his rational attempt to do the same. That's right. So we have two ways of making sense of the world. One is the mythos. This is the story of the gods. This is the story we tell ourselves, right? This is the story that um, that we we try to. It's the narrative. It's the meta narrative kind of world, uh -huh. right? This is the poetry, the story, and then the other is well, we don't, we can't prove this, right? Now we're going to engage reason. So almost from a, a rationalistic, and, and I'm borrowing anachronistically from right. the later times, but are either empiricist or rational view of, you know, the, the treatment of the logos. Um, and while it starts out a little bit more rudimentary, um, there are certain things that we can't totally explain that only the myth can explain. And this is why Plato, for example, even though, you know, um, in, in to, for our audience sake, Plato writes his character, um, Socrates, is maybe not the Socrates that really existed, but but he is the character. So sometimes we interchange Plato and Socrates here, right? Because would you say he's the mythical? Yes, Socrates? he's the mythical Socrates. <laughs> yes, uh, and and really probably just a, a character for Plato to you know demonstrate his thoughts through. Yes, but when he can't explain it through reason. He, resort, he resorts back to myth. Like, so think of the myth of the cave. Everybody's probably familiar with the, mm -hmm. the allegory of the cave. Um, so it's, it's um, in some ways, there is this argument or this group that's saying reason and the logos, this is the way to interpret the world. And the other is saying, no, there is a, you know, there, there's a mythos. Um, but what I think Hicks is going to get to at the end is you can't really have one without the other. There's actually a, a tension between the two.
So they're not within. The, the, <laughs> there's, a, I guess, suppose spoiler alert here. But are, are we saying that these are not actually locked in a, a fight to the death? No, and and I think the only way for us to recognize that they're not locked in a fight to the death, or for these to be married, is the gospel, right? Mm. Because you are taking the mythos of creation, and John says, um, in in probably responding to. Um, you know, uh, Heracletian doctrine of the day, John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? So we, we know this is the mythos. This is the Christian mythos, the Genesis mythos. And then the word, this logos actually became flesh. So this was the creator. We're pulling it out. He actually is a human being. We've seen him, handled him and, and known him full of grace and, and, and truth. Um, and, and so the, the gospel is actually what brings us to understand that the mythos and the logos are related. You, you can't have a logos without, you know, to use the language and the ideas that you need to, to reason, you have to pull them out of the story. You borrow those words from someplace, right? They don't yeah. just, you know, appear out of nowhere. Uh, it is absolutely remarkable to the, the student of, of classical education listening in uh, how any serious study of philosophy eventually takes you to the answer, the incarnation. Yes. The, that, <laughs> <laughs> it is such an important. Well, and, and if I can just comment here, this is a little off subject of, of what, um, you know, Hicks is getting at. I find that a lot of times in our, um, in, in, in our Christianity, um, in our modern Christianity, and, and this could be Catholic or Protestant, um, primarily from, from my perspective in circles, it's in the Protestant tradition, that we really focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is paramount mm-hmm. you know, to our faith and justification, but often don't speak as much about the incarnation. We sort of leave that out, um, whereas the early Christians yeah. um, who were living in this seedbed, right, they, they were the ones interacting, the incarnation um, was transformative. Right. You know, so we end up talking so much about what the incarnation uh, means for you and, and me, what it did for you and for me. Uh, and we, we fail to talk about it in philosophical and cosmological terms, right? The, the, we can, not, not only was the world made new, like we can understand the world through all of this and we cannot understand the world without it. Right. That's right? exactly And right. actually like sitting on that and trying to, you know, like, like, like just, just, you know, chewing on it. Yeah. You know, we, we, did, we just don't do that. Okay. Well, Jesus became a man. That means you're saved. All right. And, and, and well, yeah. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so, so this is, yeah, th- this, this is the mythos becoming the logo. Well, he's always been the logos, but, but we're pulling from our perspective. Right. When, when, when the incarnation takes place, now we can see the sacramental sort of, you know, perspective of the world that the things we're reasoning through, the things that we interact with, um, it's, it's an anti-Gnostic um, view, right? There's not this separation. Everything physically points to the spiritual. It's, they're, they're interconnected. Um, and there is a tension here. And, and so I think this is what um, the classical education really, and, and what Hicks is getting to is what classical education does, is it really pulls us into this tension to examine, you know, sort of both yes. sides of this argument. And, you know, and Hicks spends several paragraphs talking about how, um, how the, the poet expresses things that are in- intensely personal, uh, but are also universal and divine. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about the significance of, of mythos and how mythos 
is in in a sense togetherness. Yes. Right. Um, we're not we're not do, we don't do mythos alone. Right. Right. We can do logos alone yes. in, in, with a certain definition of it. And then he says uh, here on page thirty one, uh, the mythos is the very skeleton of civilization. Remove it and watch all the flesh of political stability, scientific invention, and social sophistication collapse. Mm. Yeah. Like like the panegyrics at a Roman funeral, remind they remind man to think and to act out of the sense of responsibility toward the past. Yes, um, and and just continuing it here, just a couple of sentences. He says, "Those who forget the past are bound to be condemned to repeat the mistakes ad infinitum." Myths inspire men to perform great and selfless deeds by assuring and warning them that their actions are not individual but symbolic. So again, um, we we can't remove the mythos. Um, we can't remove that from our vocabulary, from our imagination. Um, it, it is the very, it's the seedbed of our imagination. It is the uh, soil that you use for logos, if you, if, right. if you will. And, and so, and, and I, I think that's why he says back there earlier, he says that uh, mythos defies analysis, especially in instruction and happily it usually survives it. Right. Mm. So, so the, the attempt to analyze mythos, um, it doesn't necessarily kill it if it's, if it's a good myth, if right. it's a true myth. Well, in, you know, er, early on uh, in this episode, you, you introduced this, this ancient idea uh, that, that mythos and logos are, are, are locked in conflict. Mm -hmm. um, so then Hicks asks, uh, why then if myth bears such splendid gifts, does Plato attack it in the Republic? The reason, I believe, has nothing to do with the social and individual value of an act of mythos. Rather, it is only by contrasting reason with myth that Plato can differentiate and clarify the dialectical nature of the logos. As between philosophy and rhetoric, the apparent quarrel between logos and mythos resolves itself in a dialectical unity of opposites. The one cannot maintain its identity and purposes without the other, no more than a wrestler can pursue a sport in a world of one. <laughs> yeah, it's the one, uh, the, the one-handed clapping. Yeah. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> uh, that's a great quote, by the way. That, that really does sum up a lot of what, um, you know, what, what is perceived to be the case by the ancient Greeks that this, this, this quarrel exists, but I think Christianity answers. So, uh, you know, Hicks also says that Plato hoped to advance the Logos one step farther and use it to save the appearances of the internal realities, man's moral and spiritual nature, the untrammeled wilderness of the mythos. Is that a, a fair way to talk about, about the mythos, to describe it as a wilderness? Yeah, I think so, because it doesn't come together in what we want. You know, it, it's it's not necessarily a garden, right? A garden is more logical in terms of we're going to line things up. We're going to, you know, trim things back. We're, we're going to plant things in a certain kind of order. With reason. Yes, reason is what is guiding that. And the wilderness is, you know, that's where we get the plants from. Yeah. Right. That's where we, we pull out of the of the mythos to develop our logos. Which, you know, you know, talking about gardens, immediately we start thinking about, you know, the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's as Christians seeing, seeing the eternity of these things, uh, but that perhaps we lacked the ability to always formulate them, but we were always able to live in such a way, right? So yeah. God called us very specifically and practically to do certain things. And so... From this, this is why the the Hebrews were a people of the book yep. before there was such a thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. 
and 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 God didn't just say go become a people of the book, go become become a people of reason. What He did was He took the people by the hand, yes, and gave them things, yes, and I mean literally carved and unstone with his right. own hands and and, and, and and handed it to them. Well, and I, I think that's such a great analogy because we we often forget about the Hebrew people being a people of the word and and really in a way that the rest of the world wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. And, right. and so this is part of what made them stand out. Well, he, he talks here, Hicks. He, he tells us what this, uh, this tension in which logos and mythos can be together, what, what it me- means or may not mean for education. The measure of Plato's success in this endeavor will forever be debated, and whether his disciples have managed to press beyond him and claim new tracks of moral and spiritual hinterland for the logos remains in doubt. What influences modern education, however, are the reasons proposed for Plato's failure. These constitute, in short, modern philosophy's attack on language. Plato's sin and that of all antiquity is that he tried to think with language. Language, so the argument goes, is an inept device for reasoning. It is easier for words to grow new meanings than to shed old ones, making language hopelessly conservative. The purely descriptive scientific term has become a word with repugnant connotations, reducing the value of any food associated with it. Well, he starts going into uh, into breaking words down into <laughs> yeah. chemical uh, chemical equations and all that. Well, and and I and I think he makes a really it's it's a valid point. Um, but, but I think, again, if, if okay, so here's, here's the valid point of it, um, and, I, and I'll go back to my own experience. I remember reading, I think it was Gadamer, uh, one of the, uh, you know, German philosophers um, and modern Christian philosopher, but um, Gadamer pointing back to Heidegger and the other deconstructionists says, you know, admittedly, language is the worst medium for discussing ideas. Okay, and and you, immediately you're you're taken by that statement because you're thinking, well, what other medium is there? How how else do we communicate? Um, and and there is nothing else. And and I think this is what his point is: there isn't anything else. So we need the logos and the mythos because if you have just the mythos, then as the world, you know, and, and I use this word progresses, I mean in chronological time, and we're adding stories and, and generations and experience then words become metaphoric, right? Yeah. We use metaphors all the time without even thinking about them. You know, I'm up in the air about that, man. You know, um, and, and we and we immediately know what we're talking about. But if we were to go back and dissect what those actual words meant in their original, you know, statement and how they came to be sometimes two and three times removed into a different metaphor, um, now we're deconstructing language to the place where, as he uses this, you know, we talk about our cholesterol, right? right. If, if you and I talk about our cholesterol and it's like, man, my cholesterol is high, we know what we're talking about, right? But if I said, you know, the, uh, I don't remember what the <laughs> scientific breakdown, my C25H45OH, uh, you know, is out of balance, you know, and we're looking at each other going, what does that even mean? Right. Um, another illustration that we've we've talked about in our classes before is, you know, if I say, you know, it's warm in here, and you'd say, no, it's, I feel you know pretty good. We can communicate. We know what we're talking about. But yeah. if I said, man, it feels like it's, um, you know, 79 degrees, you know, yes. Fahrenheit, you know, well, what if you're from Celsius? What does that mean? Now you're, now you're translating figures. Um, and let's understand how endemic this problem is. Yeah. We, we look at each other and say the national debt is X trillions of dollars, or we say, we listen to Carl Sagan say billions and billions <laughs> of years ago or billions yeah. and billions of stars. And we nod our heads. Like we, like we know what that means. Right. Right. There's so much that we, we, we hear the words we could even write out a dictionary definition, 
So we think we understand what it means. Right. But if you stop and think about it, like, no, you, you don't know what's, what has just been said. <laughs> that's, that's right. You actually need to be able to speak poetically to yes. have any understanding. Because what is, I mean, what is a degree? What is a, I mean, I know we can define a year by, by the, the circulation, but when we start using units of measure, think about the fact that in some ways these are arbitrary, yes. you know, designations, usually born out of a mythos. The, yes. the mythos for a year is the, the and, and that, that's what that's what makes life worth living right yeah. you 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 get people who think it's cute but they they are life killers poetry killers when they say things like oh time to celebrate another rotation of the planet around the sun <laughs> right you know it's like it, it's, it's it's a neil degrasse tyson approach to life <laughs> yeah. you know and so the, the price you pay for that moment of flippancy is damnation. It like, is. Like, yeah. It really is. Like the wonder is gone. The gratitude is gone. Understanding is gone. Y you may know that how to formulate words in order to say that the planet goes around the sun. You don't understand it. No, you don't even understand what that what that even means, yeah. other than some little diagram you probably have in inside of your head. You know, and well, <laughs> well, and, and yeah. as you said, it, it removes the mystery and wonder. It really removes the life from life, right? It removes what makes us human right. from being human. Yeah, and it, abstra it, it abstracts us from any experience. Yes. And, and I think this is probably one of the, 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 just to make one more comment here is one of the problems that the deconstructionalist and, and a lot of the modern educators want to do is we want to pare down the meanings of words and trim them down to some technical right. definition that really strips them of their, you know, generational, um, you know, the, the mythos that's in there. If you were just to take the word, the Greek word agathos, um, which is good, translated good, it can mean everything from tall, handsome, uh, you know, good looking to virtuous to, I mean, there, there's so many different, there, there's such a spectrum of meaning. I just picked that one because I recently was studying the word, but, but if you take the spectrum of meaning um, in, in any given word, it's the context and the experience of yes. life that tells you what the, what that word is going to mean. Well, if there are two, this is off to the side, but if there, are, if there are any two languages where the native speakers of which would be ill-equipped to, to understand the virtues of ambiguity would be German and English. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so you know, Hicks, Hicks immediately after introducing uh, this theme, he, he, he talks about Roland and Oliver yeah. um, from the song of Roland. And, he, you know, I, I want to unpack this this a little bit. I'll, I'll read the bit, and then I have some things to say about this, because he actually he doesn't bring up things about Roland and Oliver that are super relevant to this chapter, uh, but perhaps would would threaten to turn the chapter into a book. So let's just do that in this podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> so let me let me read it here. So he says, consider the word valor. In the Song of Roland, valor describes both Christian and pagan rivals, as well as two men of such contrasting temperaments as Roland and Oliver, who, by the way, are friends. Yes. Roland is fierce and Oliver is wise, and both for valor may bear away the prize. The idea of valor, however, remains undivided and untarnished by the logic of events in the narrative. Indeed, the logic suggests valor to be a better guide to action than reason. Had Charlemagne heeded Roland's valorous advice, never more trust Marcille, 
revenge the man this villain made to bleed. The tragedy of Roland's defeat through Marcel's treachery would never have come about. The transcendent power of a mere word sways the argument, and unthinking valor turns out to be a better guide to action than Ganelon's reasonable di- diplomacy. Okay, perhaps, and we, we can we can get into that. But so obviously, Roland and Oliver are representing mm-hmm. here, right? Mythos and Logos. What uh, what he, he doesn't bring in, which I just think is, is so relevant to this chapter, is how often they fought each other mm-hmm. and and struggled against each other as friends, right? So there, there's so at one point, and this is in in, a, in another story, um, but so Roland and, and Oliver are, are are going together to meet this Moorish queen, and Roland lies to Oliver. Remember, Oliver is reason. Yes. Right. Roland lies to Oliver. Well, he, he says, "Hey, will you will you do something for me?" And you know, Oliver's kind of like his big brother, and he says, "Yeah, sure. No, 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 no problem." So then he asks, "Don't come into the city with me. I want to. I, I want to be the only one who talks to the queen and get all the glory for this." And so Oliver's actually kind of mad about this, but he does. He stays there on the hillside. Doesn't go into the city. So Roland goes in there. He he gets all this honor from the queen. He gets a a a, 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 um, a cloak from the queen. But as he's trying to leave, he's ambushed by Saracens and um, Oliver won't come down. He's keeping his promise. He's just <laughs> watching this guy, you know, watching his mythos friend, yep. right? His, his poem friend get into trouble and he's in so much trouble. Eventually Oliver rides down, whacks a couple of guys off of him, gives him a horse and then leaves again and lets him finish the fight on right. his own. <laughs> and, and, and this is reason. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and later on in, in another episode, um, Oliver actually um, disguises himself as a Saracen and, uh, and fights, ambushes him with a group of his own men and fights with Roland until, and Roland is waiting for his friend Oliver to show up and save him from these Saracens, but he never does until finally he admits defeat and it turns out the Saracen was his friend Oliver all along. But like he, he for, he's forcing Roland to admit that he needs his friend. And just the potential to be mined from that, right, yes. of this relationship. Yeah, okay, there is conflict. They didn't, you know, there, it's not for nothing that we talk about the conflict between Logos and Mythos. But they also, in a Christian, in the Christian pedagogy, in the Christian worldview, in the Christian cosmos, they must be friends. Yes, they, and and you can't have one without the other. You need them both, right? And and I think that's what he's he's getting at. Probably assuming that people know the the relationship, <laughs> there, right? <laughs> Whoa! Uh, you mean but, you used to be able to do that? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, assume a universal education. Goodness. Assuming that his audience is, yeah. So and both for valor may bear away the prize, but there's a valor in reason and there's a valor in the mythos. Um, and I think his his point here is about the way you know the idea of valor. Um, remains undivided and untarnished by the logic of events in the narrative. Okay? Mm-hmm. Valor stays the same, even though you have two different characters acting in two different ways. You need right. them both. You know, yeah. right? you you can't do one without the other. Maybe a more modern and and uh, you know is a, a example of that would be the Star Wars. You know, you've got Spock and you've got Kirk, right? You know. Oh, wait, hold hold on, <laughs> hold on. You. <laughs> You just lost half of our geek audience. Oh, okay. You mean Star Trek. Oh, I said Star Trek. Sorry. Yes. not When I say Star Wars, yeah. sorry. 
I know, I know you Trek. know, but we have to address it. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, yeah, Star Trek. Yeah, so you've got Spock yeah. and you've got Kirk. You've got passion, if you will, and you've got lo- you know logic, right? You know, pure. And you see all the you see all the time. Not only Spock's lacks, but um, but Kirk's mistakes. Yes, constantly. exactly. Yep. A wilderness and <laughs> and the logic. Well, you know, there's a little later on. Um, so Hicks t- talks about the mythopoeic imagination, et cetera. Great, and then he says, seeing all things in a sort of Heraclitian flux, the modern philosopher shudders at the inadequacy of language to describe this phenomenon of the mythopoeic imagination. What is a Heraclitian flux? Well, this is from, you know, the idea of Heraclitus, the the whole world is in flux, everything is changing. This is what um, Ovid's Metamorphosis is based on, this this sort of idea that everything changes and and moves into something either better uh, or something worse. Is it Kingfisher's Catch Fire that has the the line uh, uh, about Heraclitian fire? I believe it is. That is uh, Gerald uh, Manley Hopkins, right? Right. Yeah. As kingfishers catch fire, we're gonna we're, we're gonna Google live as we record. I mean, and uh, and Im- impose the weight uh, on the listener. Oh, look, it's up! The wonder of of phones. Um, it is not. Oh no. shoot! There's another Hopkins poem with Heraclitian fire. Um, anyway, let's move on before I embarrass myself <laughs> further. <laughs> uh, it's always fun doing these because we get to you know just hang out and chat about this. So, well, here on page 34 at the very top. Moreover, by methodologically excluding myth, modern education can no longer pass on the blessing of social cohesiveness because that you know comes yep. from myth and individual coherence from reason. The drift away from connotative language excuses education from urging upon students the moral imperatives inherent in such words as valor, courage, courtesy, gentleness, honesty, and love. Without the cultural unity provided by myth, the school shrinks from teaching the transcendent meaning and value of human life and settles instead for an analytical pedagogy that often treats human life and art as a programmed mechanism. Yeah. So what th- this is what's really interesting about um the well, I, I'll, I'll bring. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting way to respond to this. In our modern education, we want to strip everything down. This this is the this is the logos, pure logos approach, right? We we want philosophy to kill the poetry, and and if we were to transport those two ideas into our modern world, you know, Christianity would be the poetry, the mythos. And the, you know, science would be, you know, the logos now that that is not an honest, um, you know, portrayal, but this is the way that modern educators do want to portray it. Right. Yes. That your Christianity is just a story. And, and recently, uh, on a social media platform, uh, somebody had invited me to view a, a, uh, a series on education or something. And they had mentioned in there about the progressive takeover of, um, of education and uh, a former student of mine that uh, I went off to Georgetown, became an attorney and an atheist, all the same thing and is just very anti, you know, Christian, everything. And he made a comment. He said, what do you mean uh, that we just tell facts and, and data, you know, versus uh, a bunch of myths and stories. Mm. And, and it just portrayed in my mind. I mean, just a, it, without him even realizing what he had said and, and he literally laid out, amongst a bunch of classical educators, by the way, the very dilemma that uh, this is what Hicks is pushing back against, that the modern educator wants to strip 
the reason, the logos, wants to strip the facts and data from any context of the story out of the wilderness. And I'm afraid this is not for noble reasons. No, not yeah. at all. Because the, the effect of, of that strippage is, uh, is that it helps you to be lazy and not take any responsibility, right? If valor is not real, if nobility is not real, if honesty is subjective, that means that there is no one obliging me to do anything at any point. Well, I'm what take, a relief. Yeah, I, as I say, I'd take a step forward and say it's even it's more nefarious even than than just uh, that it's a bad thing because of what you just described as an as an example. We remove the ought. And yes. all we have is the is. So every rapscallion rushes to that to that yeah, way of seeing the world. Absolutely, yeah. Because it, nothing is imposed on me. There's no virtue. There's no. There's no. It it really becomes what uh, uh, was it Oscar Wilde who said that you know in art there is no virtue or vice. That's just all material for which you know art is made of, and and this is what you know education is. We don't. There is no. You know. There's just facts and data. There there right. is no. There is no morality in in any of this, and and you can't. Well, and, and here's the problem with that. You cannot have facts and data removed or, or divorced from any kind of mythos. So they're going to no. supply what they call secularism, but they're going to try to supply their own mythos, which basically becomes, like you said, every rapscallion's yeah. worldview. Yeah. I mean, if you have, you know, it is best to have Roland and Oliver together. Yeah. If you only have Roland, you get... You know, you you wade into the ocean fighting against the gods and die. Yep. That's the best way to be a pagan. <laughs> because the other option is to have no story at all. And right. that is the option upon us. And that is the world upon us now. Everyone looking out at at the great galactal wilderness and pondering their insignificance unto suicide. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you, you immediately you know, if we go back to Achilles or Achilles is the idea of him giving up old age right because he wants a story right, right. so and and this at story, least you have that story. you can have both you yeah. can be incarnational <laughs> but man oof. well and so in, and if we go back to your uh you know to the illustration you brought up here about valor with with oliver and roland um i, I think there's one thing that maybe if we could leave our audience with in thinking is these two need to be friends and rivals yeah. right they, right they, yes they, they one cannot concede his disposition to the other um, but they can't be enemies. You know, they may be rivals and that tension, you know, creates what is good, you know, for everybody, for society, for, you know, for the, you know, for the soldiers, it, it, it creates what is good for them because there is that tension that exists between the logos and the mythos. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I, I'd love for that to be the, be the last thought or perhaps the penultimate uh, thought. You know, you opened this episode reading uh, the very last lines of this chapter. And uh, I'd like to close the episode by reading those same lines. I love it. And, uh, you know, newly illuminated to the listener. Affirming that precision is a poetic ideal as well as a requirement of science Teaching that a love of words and an understanding of language are the creative movement of the spirit across the face of the waters. Showing how words disclose the transcendent order of meaning and value behind the curtain of a transient world. These beloved and arduous tasks of the classical schoolmaster abide. They still do. <laughs> so long, everyone. Thank you. Bless.